Hello, everybody, and thank you once again for joining me on another episode of Politico. I am your host, Juan Carlos Diaz, and today I will be talking to an expert on libertarianism. Um, so I'm not going to say a non-expert because I will be the non-expert in this situation. So we're going to get our minds blown together as we um, listen to this person speak uh, and talk about all the different libertarian stuff and the justice system and things like that. So with me today, it is Chase Oliver, candidate for president of the United States 2024, and he is a libertarian. With that, let's get political. Chase, let me ask you pretty much um, some questions, but let me first have you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about the uh, work you do as a libertarian and how do you feel? Yeah, first, uh, thanks for having me on. My name is Chase Oliver. I'm a candidate for president, as you said. And uh, if folks want to learn more about the campaign, they, of course, can go to VoteChaseOliver.com and learn all about stuff. If we don't happen to touch on your favorite topic today, you can probably find that information there. Uh, and I am a 38-year-old who is uh, wanting to run for president because I think it's time for a new generation to really have a voice in the American political system. And I'm tired of uh, old dinosaur parties and their candidates who are old dinosaurs themselves uh, trying to represent the uh, American people. It's time for a new generation rooted in liberty and the rights of all individuals to live free. And that's the message that I want to bring forward to each and every voter so they have an alternative to Donald Trump and Joe Biden that they can feel good about voting for. That is amazing to hear. Um, I've been involved myself with the Libertarian Party, I believe, since 2019, I believe, um, a little bit. And I started hearing about it. Then I got myself more involved and I ended up as part of the Jorgensen campaign in 2020 and was eye-opening to me how the two-party system has slowly been like deteriorating and changing people's views in the United States to keep it. And that's the norm and they shouldn't be any other side. But as we know, you know, bipartisan and two-party systems never work pretty much. You need to have the third parties and sometimes third parties are way better, including the Libertarian Party myself. I know that we are here for the freedom. So let me ask you, why a libertarian why becoming a libertarian why running as a libertarian yeah so uh my journey to libertarianism uh is rooted in my opposition to war around the world uh so i got started in politics because uh 9 11 happened when i was in high school i started seeing people that i knew uh getting sent to the wars in afghanistan and iraq so i myself became an anti-war activist and because i did not know about the libertarian party at the time uh and george bush was a republican you know, I reflexively became a Democrat. So I joined the Democratic Party, became part of the anti-war resistance movement uh, until Barack Obama was elected. And he was elected on many foreign policy promises, like talking to our enemies without precondition, closing Guantanamo Bay, ending the wars and stopping the drones, uh, of which he did none. And he failed on every foreign policy promise. And so at that point, I became politically homeless until uh, a chance encounter in 2010. I was at the Atlanta Pride Festival. Uh, and there was the Libertarian Party of Georgia and their candidate for governor who brought me in. And when he heard that I was anti-war, uh, the first words out of his mouth were, welcome home. Uh, and that's what got me started. And since then, I've gone from being, uh, you know, what you would maybe call a free market Democrat to now being a radical minarchist. Uh, it's a great transition that I've gone through over the last 13 years. And I tell people all the time, if you're if you're libertarian on one or two issues, you should be welcome into our tent to sit down, discuss with other libertarians, because you get more libertarian as you stay with us. And so uh, I encourage folks who uh, are maybe libertarian on one or two issues to come into the tent, speak with us. Let's have some great discourse. And I guarantee you become more libertarian as you go along. 
that's how it happened for me. And that's what I want to do for millions of American voters is bring them to the ideas of liberty uh, in a way that's welcoming, uh, that doesn't push them away or litmus test them at the, at the ballot. Uh, we want them to get involved and we want them to become more libertarian as they go. Absolutely. I, you know, I never started, like I never had someone walk me like that, like in the Libertarian Party. But when I, I started reading myself and learning more about it, and then I joined the Libertarian Party of Ohio. And then I have, I think I met an amazing team all over Ohio. I was like, wow, there's so many Libertarians and they're all amazing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm, it makes me happy. Everybody has like a different experience, but the Libertarian Party is so welcoming of everybody. That's one thing that I love about it. Um, well, just, you know. I, I can speak to Ohio for sure. You know, I, I've traveled all over the country. I've been to, you know, about, I'm about to hit my 43rd and 44th state that I've traveled to this year. Wow. Uh, and I've been to Ohio. Well, I can tell you, they're very welcoming. They're very awesome people out there. Uh, and I, I love Ohio libertarians. They've been fighting for great issues uh, like the legalization of cannabis in the state. They were behind uh, uh, that issue uh, 100%, as well as, you know, fighting for the coalition and qualified immunities, another great group there that libertarians support. And so there's lots of awesome liberty issues in Ohio. So you're in a great place uh, to really get involved in the Libertarian Party. Yes, this past year has been a whole run of uh, different issues for liberty in Ohio itself. So I am I'm glad that we are here for liberty. Absolutely. So let me ask you, um, you know, running for president is not an easy thing and more as a third party, uh, specific libertarians, as we know in the past, as I mentioned, the country has pushed the idea and followed the failed idea of the two party system. Pretty much. Um, I myself was a witness of that in 2020 when uh, Joe Jorgensen came to Cleveland and she was removed of like city areas because she supposedly didn't have a permit and they didn't want her to be around. Um, you know, and so I just wanted to ask, what do you think? Do you think they will give you the same treatment as a libertarian? Uh, do you think you will be able to get into the debates this year? What do you think uh, this coming up year? Do you think you will be treated as the two parties, the two primary parties uh, when going out there? So here's what I think. I think the two-party system is going to try to do exactly what they've done to libertarian candidates in the past. They're going to try to discount us and other third parties and independents. But what I see is actually the voters demanding more options. And this is when you see uh, we have a lot more independent candidates who are putting significant amount of resources into uh, campaigning uh, this time around. And they're, and they're getting a little bit of uh, the votes out of the Republican and Democratic parties, libertarians included. It's, of course, a goal of mine to earn as many votes as possible and to try to have a real impact in the 2024 election. But I think when you see these uh, rise in independent candidates uh, who might not even have the same ballot access as libertarians. And so uh, could we get in the debates? Well, let me say this. If RFK is in the debates, he's not going to be on as many state ballots as the libertarian candidate for president. And so if he's being invited, we really need to be pushing for our inclusion as well. Uh, and I do believe that there's a lane opening up for people wanting to hear independent voices at the debate. And I'll fight like hell to make sure we can do it. Uh, that's that's a primary goal of mine. Uh, but do I expect that the two-party system is just going to roll over and let that happen? Absolutely not. It's going to come from grassroots change. It's going to come from individual Americans demanding that change from the debates. And, you know, there is the slim margin that, uh, you know, the Republicans last time around, they said the Commission on Presidential Debates was too... Uh, too woke in their mind, uh, whatever that means to them. And they they actually have threatened to pull out of it. So if they pull out of it, I'm going to challenge the Republicans right now. You should invite the Libertarians. You should invite RFK Jr. And of course, you should invite President Biden to an independent debate. And let's really see whose ideas are going to win in the long run. Because I challenge Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or whoever their nominee is going to be to actually put up or shut up when it comes to wanting to have independent debates. And that means libertarian inclusion for sure. I, I absolutely agree with that. I was just 
looking online, it's like, you know, they have this many candidates and they have to, once they choose their, you know, who they're going to endorse, they're going to push for that person. And I know like in the past, the Libertarian Party, we have pushed to get people into the debates. Uh, many of us um, with different campaigns in 2016 and 2020, which was the was I was mostly involved. We pushed uh, to like Jorgensen speak, which they didn't, but we try our best. And that's, um, I hope this year we can try harder and we can get we can get you there uh, for sure. Get you in there. Yeah, I was so, happy to work on the Letter Speak campaign uh, in 2020. You know, it was a great organizational uh, feat to get so many people across the country together to do that. And I would hope that the Libertarian Party and Libertarian state parties all over the country can make a similar organization to try to get debate inclusion going in 2024. Uh, I would be happy to help be part of that as the candidate. Obviously, I would welcome that support. And uh, it's something we have to do. We can't demand that the two party, you know, the two party system is not going to give us what we want unless we demand it from them and really uh, and really show up at the grassroots. So I encourage people who want to see more people in debates to go ahead and start organizing right now with independent organizations that are uh, all about debate inclusion. They do exist out there. Uh, and so go ahead and let's start forming ourselves together in a single issue coalition across these independent and third parties. And let's really make that push to show the Democrats and Republicans that American voters want more than two choices on that debate stage. Absolutely. I um, I don't think I put this question together for you, but I wanted to ask, how does it feel to be known as the most influential libertarian? Well, you know, I, I'm very proud of the work that I did. You know, that was given to me in 2022 by Rolling Stone magazine, that quote, uh, that moniker. And it's because I did have a huge impact uh, for libertarians in that 2022 Senate race, of which I was very proud to run. Uh, I was super excited that in the most expensive Senate race in U.S. history, uh, in, a, in, a, in a race that is hyper-polarized, where the, the fate of the U.S. Senate could be in the balance, libertarians forced a runoff. We got enough people to just not be so scared to vote for the lesser of two evil to actually force this into a runoff. And I think that's a huge success for our party. And I was very proud to work very hard for that success. And I'll work just as hard, if not harder, across all 50 states to make sure that we can break down the duopoly, stick a thumb in their eye, and really show them that the libertarians are here to show up and be impactful in our elections. Uh, and so, you know, while I'm very happy that someone, you know, threw that name on there and it makes great literature, right, for your handouts and things like that, to have a quote from the press saying you're the most influential libertarian in America. But I hope in 2024, I can even grow that influence across all 50 states. And so that the Libertarian Party has a real impact, is shown here to stay, and uh, really is ready for the next generation to grow over the next 20. You know, I don't think about the next financial quarter. You know, I think about our party in terms of the next quarter century. Where are we going to grow in the next 25 years? And I'm ready to spearhead that effort right now. Absolutely. That is um, that is amazing to hear. I know, um, you know, I was reading through your platform, and I will say it's definitely one of one one platform that I can stand with and I can stand behind and be um, for it. I I mean, literally before this podcast, I was uh, making a Facebook post um, with the um, I endorse Chase Oliver um, image that was sent to us. So I was making a, and I was telling everybody, you know, this year I will not waste my vote. This year, I, this coming up year, I will vote Libertarian, um, you know, which is not to me, has never been a wasted vote. Wasting a vote to me is voting for the two-party system and following what everybody wants me to do. But um, going with that, I was looking at your platform. We have education. You uh, have education on your platform. And I wanted to ask, this um, year, I believe less than like five months ago, we saw um, a student getting kicked out of school because he was wearing a Gatson flag uh, patch on their backpack, um, Jaden Rodriguez, his name. And he was kicked out of his, uh, I believe it was middle school, I want to say, or elementary, one or the other. And, you know, the school 
pretty much said and uh, Pat represented racism, slavery, hatred, that it was just there. And they try to push the agenda on this kid and also taking his uh, free speech away. Do you think this was a form of like government overtake or like showing, trying to show their power and they're superior than civilians and they can kick you out, you know, because of your freedom of speech is pretty much taken away at that moment and your freedom of expression through that patch. So how do you feel about like that specifically in a school happening? So um, it's, a, it's a combination of a couple of things, right? But like you can see right here behind me, there is a, a pride version of the Gatson flag right over my shoulder. Uh, so I obviously don't think that that flag represents racism or hatred or violence or evil. Uh, it represents the, uh, the notion that uh, we should not be tread upon, that our liberty should not be tread upon by a government. Uh, it is a flag of the Revolutionary War, not the Civil War. Uh, and so it's not a flag that would represent some sort of uh, evil or hatred. Though some people maybe who espouse views that we don't agree with have probably flown that flag. Uh, you know, there's probably people I uh, views who I uh, don't agree with, whose views I don't uh, support who fly under an American flag, even though I'm a proud patriot of the United States. So uh, your symbol is what you make of it. And what this flag represents to me is a uh, is a symbol of liberty and of freedom. That's why, that's why I wear this, you know, why I fly this flag at pride parades when I march them, because I do believe in the right of self-expression, free speech and liberty. Uh, now, that being said with the school, I think it's a combination of two things. One is probably a misunderstanding of what that flag represents, which for a school, uh, to me, is kind of a, uh, an indicator that maybe their history department maybe needs some uh, brushing up on and they maybe need to learn a little bit more about the Revolutionary War and things like this. Uh, it may be an indicator that their curriculum is not the most sound and that there should be uh, alternatives to that school's education. But also it comes from the fact that there is this uh, tendency in public schools and government schools to really have this top-down authoritarian kind of zero tolerance policy for for things that they don't deem as acceptable and i really think this is one more reason why we need to have choice in education why we need to be funding students and not systems if we're going to be funding anything at all uh and that power should be resting in the hands of parents students and educators and not bureaucrats the administrative state uh, of the public school system now if your public school is great Feel free to keep sending them there and you can send the funding there. But uh, in places like Atlanta, where the public schools were failing so bad that the teachers had to cheat and get arrested on the RICO statute for trying to cheat on tests to uh, achieve more funding. Uh, well, in those schools, parents should have more options and educational op uh, entrepreneurs should be able to get into that space, open up alternative schools and be funded uh, in, in a way that allows for more choice in education uh, and a variety of education. And I say this too, uh, this would do away with much of the culture war issues that have arisen up across the states. Uh, instead of trying to determine how to control your public school system, why not give that uh, power directly to parents to determine what school you want to send your kids to and what curriculum you want them to teach? Uh, I think that's a way to get rid of a lot of cut right through these culture war issues and fight for a more free cultural exchange of ideas ideas where we can see a marketplace in education uh and, and while we're talking about education you know i say this to every time i meet a voter uh one of the ways i espouse libertarian values to democrats republicans libertarians independents is if they're a parent you know i i tell them you know i imagine you have unconditional love for your kids and they always say yeah i do i would do anything for my kids and that's how most parents are and so i always ask them so shouldn't you be the advocate that has the most say so and the way that child is developed and the way they grow and the way they're uh, being supported because you're their more supportive advocate out there. Shouldn't we take power to you and take it away from centrally planned bureaucrats in Washington, D.C.? Because even if they mean well, 
and many do, uh, they don't know your child. They don't know their individuality. They don't know what makes them special and unique, but you do. You know your your, your family. You know your community. You know your, uh, your local uh, community and your neighbors. So shouldn't power be more localized in those hands and in your hands as an individual instead of a, a giant federal department of education, instead of this public school structure, which can create cracks that kids can fall through instead of a, a marketplace of education that can make kids thrive and, and, and really have a, a much better alternative uh, than what we have today. And that's what I fight for. Uh, but this student, he should not have been kicked out for this flag. And in fact, I think this should have started maybe at best a discussion about what that flag means to that student. Uh, but instead, they just went ahead and tried to suspend him and, and do away with this uh, free speech. And I would support any kind of lawsuit. Uh, and hopefully he gets restitution for that. Totally agree with you there. Um, I was, I, I will say myself, I was actually very upset when I saw that because um, I myself used to have um, a Gatson flag patch uh, for school pretty much in my backpack and I was never, um, like got in a lot of arguments with students explaining other students, um, more debates pretty much on it. Um, and I got kicked out of history class plenty of times, but never um, kicked out or, or like suspended from school because of it. Um, so I was very surprised and I always, that was one thing that like when I, knew we were going to have this interview. I was like, I'm definitely bringing that up and talk about it since it's part of the education system. So with that, let me ask you, since this has been a hot topic this past year too, um, LGBTQ uh, plus departments in school and teaching students uh, or LGBT ideology. We have seen um, many school boards counseling anything as books that has uh, gay characters or um, movies that contain any LGBT characters and not allowing those in school systems. Um, do you think that schools should be open to teaching students about LGBTQ uh, plus ideology or should that not be a school like topic at all? Well, uh, I, I, you know, I first have to start this topic by saying, uh, you know, if you don't, if folks don't know, I am a gay man. Uh, so I'm LGBTQ myself. And, uh, and as I said before, you know, I think if we had a real free market of education where parents uh, are the ones choosing where to send their kids, it would do away with a lot of these culture war issues we're having to fight. Uh, but I can say this, you know, uh, if I were a parent, right, I'm an uncle to seven nephews and nieces. I love them dearly. Uh, and they have a gay uncle. And I feel like it's okay uh, to have age-appropriate education, things like being able to teach that not all families are the same, not all families have a mom and a dad. Some families have two moms, two dads, or one mom, one dad, or grandparents, sometimes the parents. Those are okay age-appropriate things to teach, I would say, uh, younger students, people who are like my niece's age, who's eight years old, right? But she's eight. She does not need to go into the inner depths of gender ideology. I don't think that's age-appropriate for her. Absolutely. <laughs> now, that being said, I think as you do get older and we see like high school and things like this, these are themes that will come up as we discuss contemporary history and, and, and current events. You know, I had an entire class in high school that was called Contemporary Issues. That was all about what was going on in the news right now so that we could learn to digest information and critically think. And of course, I believe uh, LGBTQ issues, because they are so politically relevant, should maybe be taught to those kids who are maybe in high school and age appropriate. But again, this should be a conversation that happens between a parent and the school and not necessarily between a president and the government having a say so in that. And so I would encourage the you know free cultural exchange of ideas as a parent, send your kids where you want to. But I would like my kids to have age appropriate information 
about the fact that LGBTQ people do exist. And then as they get older, I would like them to be able to critically think about these issues and be able to think for themselves and not be merely indoctrinated and told what to believe, but to really have a free and open discourse. And schools need to not be afraid to have these conversations. In fact, this is why education and schools exist to begin with, is to have free exchange of ideas, to be able to parse these things out in a way that is professional, in a way that is ethical, and in a way that allows for students to learn. And that's what we should be teaching kids, not merely facts in a book, not indoctrination from on high, from a, from a school board that thinks you need to know X, Y, or Z, no, we need to be having the, the, the search for knowledge in our schools. And that does involve critical thinking. And sometimes it does involve controversial topics, particularly as you're getting older and like, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, you know, right, you know, or when you're in university, these are where controversial topics are going to need to be discussed because we have to be realistic. Our kids live in the real world. They're going to have access to the world's information via the internet. And you can't keep everything hidden from everybody all the time. But of course, that involves being age appropriate. No, I don't think my eight-year-old niece should have to go into the inner depths of gender ideology or the trans fight or these things, or have to be marching around with a trans pride flag if she doesn't want to, right? But I also think that uh, my, my nieces who are in high school are old enough to know that they have a gay uncle, what gay pride means, understand the history of Stonewall and learn those kinds of concepts. And I think that's an important information because it's part of American history and part of the American story to hear about that kind of stuff. And so uh, I, I am I err on the side of like, let's go with what's age appropriate, but that should also be determined by parents and educators and not by some school board that might be in your state house, your county seat, or even further away in Washington, D.C. Like, let's do this on an individual localized level. Absolutely. Uh, I agree with that. I myself, um, I got the opportunity to um, be part of a lot of uh, LGBT clubs during high school. Um, I didn't see those when I was, um, you know, in the fifth grade or in the second grade. But I, once I got to high school, I was very um, proud that my high school had um, GSA and we were able to pretty much learn about these things and talk to each other about it. Well, I, well I'm really glad you brought that up because, uh, you know, people sometimes think that LGBTQ is like brand new or it's some sort of fad that just came out like the last 10 years. Uh, you mentioned the GSA, a Gay Straight Alliance, which is a student-led organization that is uh, about creating bridges between LGBTQ and, uh, and straight students to make sure that there's better understanding and education around these topics. Uh, I myself started my high school GSA when I was in high school, and that was over 20 years ago. Uh, and so it's not a brand new thing. It's something that's been around for a long time. Uh, and I think it's, you know, I don't think we need to regress backwards to be able to discuss these issues in a way that's, again, age appropriate and brings real value to the critical thinking that students need to learn if they're going to be lifelong learners. And that's what we're really wanting students to be is lifelong learners, people who always have a thirst for knowledge and, and not accepting just what they're told, but being able to look deeper into that and understand where that information comes from, where there might be potential biases. These are things that we really need to teach our students. And like I said, I started my GSA over 20 years ago. And so this is not some sort of new fad. I had trans friends 20 years ago. Uh, this is not a new thing. And so I, I think when people decide to say, oh, well, it's all of a sudden popped up. Well, this is because social inclusion has gotten so much more relevant. You know, more people are trans accepting or gay accepting. And so naturally we're seeing more. You know, uh, I went and actually a few years ago, went back and spoke to my high school GSA that I had started. And the first question I asked them was like, how many of you have watch a piece of media or have read a book or seen a TV show that has an LGBTQ part character part of the main cast, like main character? And everyone's hand went up. 
And, you know, I said, well, when I was your age, we had uh, like three episodes of Dawson's Creek, my so-called life and Will and Grace. That's all we had. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a whole different world. And so I, I don't think we need to be afraid of the fact that there's more, you know, uh, visibility of LGBTQ people. Uh, I think that's just a natural result of uh, people being more accepting. It's just like now we see more uh, African-Americans and Latinos and Asian-American actors uh, in our media today. Why is that? Well, because we go into an area where uh, we've moved past Jim Crow and we've moved past the uh, societal, uh, much of the societal racism that existed for a long time in our media. And now we're seeing stories being told, you know, across uh, across ethnic boundaries, across nationalities. Uh, you know, the movie that's most talked about right now in America is a Japanese film. It's the new Godzilla film, right? So uh, I think it's very cool that we have that uh, free cultural exchange. And, you know, I think liberal uh, liberalism and, and more specifically libertarianism is a world that provides that. Yeah, that's, um, that is amazing. I, I, I will say I, I find a lot of things in common here. I also I was part of uh, the starting of the GSA in my in my high school after they tried to remove it. And um, as part of the ROTC, I was a cadet in the ROTC, and they did not wanted us to use the ROTC room for it. And we we all of us went uh, above the colonel at that time, and we went to his superiors and got it to happen. So there was some some good um, history there. I'm I'm glad that you know. These are things, similarities that we can find, and that's amazing. <laughs> so let me ask you, you mentioned already a lot about the Department of Education. So we know that their curriculum, and I asked a lot of friends that are parents um, how, what they think about the curriculum, and a lot of them said it was outdated, sometimes misinformed, um, and just doesn't teach the children what they need to learn for current society and what's happening in this society right now. Do you think the Department of Education has any business uh, in the school system, should they, should they be a department of education as it is, and should tax uh, payer dollars should go towards this department of education? Uh, uh, my answer is no. I don't think that there needs to be a federal department of education. I think if you look at uh, how education has gone since the department has been created, we have continued to spend more and more dollars per student uh, and more and more regulatory uh, control over those students and where those dollars go. And we've still not seen the growth and performance to correlate with that. Uh, in fact, in some areas, we've seen stalling or moving backwards in terms of literacy or math scores. And so uh, it's obviously not worked. And the reason why it hasn't worked is it's central planning. Uh, central planning from a top-down style just does not work when you link about the complexities and the diversity of the United States. Uh, we have rural states. We have more urban states. You know, we have states that uh, you know, uh, you focus on one area of history or another, right? Like there's this broad diversity of thought across the country. And so to try to centrally plan that in DC just is, is, is doomed to fail. It does create the cracks that people fall through. And so I would end the department of education. I would, I would block grant that money, uh, back to the States and hope that they block grant that back, to, you know, using the bully pulpit, if I were elected president to block grant that back to each and every local person to fund students and not systems, if you're going to fund anything at all through taxpayer funds, uh, and I think that is the best way to handle this because it has been a real failure. And if you look at, you know, uh, the cost per student for results, it, is, it has just been shown to just not work. And we have to be honest with ourselves about this. And I, this is what I tell to progressives and liberals all the time is like, 
there's only so much money. You can keep throwing money at things and it's just not going to improve outcomes. It's the same thing I tell conservatives about immigration. You can keep throwing money at border patrol and walls, but people still have managed to get through and get past. And so you have to understand you're putting good money after bad. You have to find a better way to run these systems. And so this centrally planned department education system does have to go. And it's something that we need to eliminate as soon as possible to bring more freedom to individual students and their parents and also to educators. This is the other thing that education freedom brings. Uh, right now, there's so many educators out there who probably got into the idea of being a teacher because they had a great teacher growing up. They felt inspired to be a teacher and they go to school and they get out of school and they're ready to get into a, a, a classroom. And then they realize all the regulations and all the hamstring that happens. And it's only gotten worse since they probably had a great teacher, right? And now they're stuck in this broken public school system and they know they can teach better. They know they could probably teach math better than Common Core. They know they can probably create a much more enriched love for history than what these state-sponsored uh, regulatory curriculums are providing to them, right? So why aren't we freeing up educators to educate the best way they know how? And if we ended the public school model as we know it today, it's not like we would run out of teachers. We would just have a lot of public school teachers who are able to enter themselves into a free market of education and provide a better education for our students and, and give them a better uh, way to do it and, and let them have more freedom in how to educate our kids. I think that's a win for everybody. Uh, and I think it's something that we really need to be pushing hard for as libertarians. And it's something that if I'm speaking to the next generation, to Gen Z, who right now is just starting to get into the world where they're getting married and starting to have kids, and they're going to be thinking about the schools their kids are going to go to in a few years, well, we want to make sure that they have a free uh, market of education opportunity for their kids. And so we need to fight for that right now. So before their kids are five and six years old and getting started, we want to make sure that there's already that marketplace for them ready to go. Absolutely. Um, that is that, that is a great response there. Um, you know, I was um, my next question. I myself, I'm a college student right now. I am mm -hmm. two semesters away from finishing uh, a bachelor master program. Uh, I have uh, my associates in politics and criminal justice, which is why I'm so involved in in the love of politics. But I, I use the Pell Grant system, which a lot of people, you know, use the system and have to go through all the hoops to get up college resources and stuff. But sometimes, you know, if you're not working class or, you know, barely middle class, you don't get to, to these programs. And then you have the American government pushing the student loan programs that are very ineffective, uh, pretty much. I, I have to this year get a student loan for a, one of my classes. and it was a whole difficulty. And then when I got out of it, I didn't even know what's next after this. I'm done with the loan. What do I have to do next? So do you, and your platform, you do share uh, stuff about, you know, some about student loans. And so if elected president, what would you do uh, about this department specifically, like with student loans area, how would you support uh, college students in that specific like topic with student loans and student debt? Yeah, so very quickly, I'll start with the Pell Grant system, and then we'll move on to the, the student loan system apparatus as a whole. So with Pell Grants, you know, I do believe in uh, trying to help those who are without means uh, have the means to go to university. I don't believe that there are people who hate that, right? I don't believe there's a lot of people who are against that. But I do believe that the government maintaining that system and managing that system is an ineffective way of doing it. And so I would seek to phase out the Pell Grant system and hopefully see that replaced with a free market system uh, with, an, with NGOs and nonprofits being able to make up that stopgap. 
Uh, I think in many times that would be a more efficient way for those funds to be distributed to students. And when you're more efficiently being able to distribute those funds, you're able to distribute to more people. And so I would seek to get the government out of that business and see that replaced uh, in the in the nonprofit space, which is where I think it belongs. Uh, but then when we get into student loans and why are student loans some, I mean, first off, the paperwork you said is extremely complex. Of course, it's a government program. So anything that's government programmed is going to be centrally planned and be usually very confusing and not, not as easy to Right. I feel like there's someone there who just gets happy when they make something complex, they get happy about it. There's someone in the inside that just loves making things complex. Well, because complexity creates jobs, right? And it's a jobs program. That's what many federal programs are. It's just to create uh, paperwork for somebody to stamp or check off and then move along to the next line. Uh, but what we need to do is we need to actually radically change the way we do our student loan system in this country. And that involves getting the government out of student loans. 92% of student loans are currently backed by the federal government. Uh, and because of this, there's this artificial floor that's created for tuition. Uh, and of course, colleges and universities take advantage of this and they continue to see tuitions rising far faster than the rate of inflation. And this is because it's a government involved program. And when the government gets involved, just like with healthcare, just like with housing, the more the government gets involved, the faster that grows beyond the rate of inflation. Uh, and so we need to get the government out of it. And if I were president, I would ask the Congress to me legislation that does a few things. First, uh, it would make all currently held government student loans interest-free as of today. So that way, anybody who's stuck in the interest loan cycle where they only have just barely enough to pay the interest rate, uh, they're paying down the principal now. Uh, you would also allow for dischargeable for those who are in extreme situations to be able to get out through bankruptcy. But make those loans uh, interest-free as of today, and you pair that with no new government-backed student loans. And so it's actually taking loans off of the balance sheet that aren't being replaced with new ones. And this is transitioning the student loan model over to a fully privatized system where banks are the ones who are providing those loans and they're doing so on the worth and the value of what they're likely to get back from that degree. And so a bank is going to be much more likely to give out a, a loan for, say, an engineering degree or for a degree, say, in criminal justice, where there's certainly a need in the industry right now and there are jobs that will pay for it. And they're more likely to loan out for something like that than, say, for something like, uh, you know, a philosophy degree where, you know, there's not a definite uh, direction of where you're going to be making money with that degree. And what you're going to start seeing is universities and other institutions of higher learning actually lowering the cost of tuitions for those kind of programs that aren't going to get the best value out. And you're going to see uh, you're going to see an actual marketplace in education with uh, advertised pricing, advertised outcomes. And that is a system that is way more information for a student to be able to enter into when they're thinking about what industry they want to get into. OK, well, this is an industry where there's lots of demand. There's a, an ability for me to get loans and go into it. And you can actually have a much better outcome for these students who are trying to who are going into college and coming out with tens of thousands of dollars of debt. And then they find that the job market that they thought existed wasn't there. Uh, and so we need to be really, really radically changing this. So, yeah make student loans interest-free as of today so those can pay those down. Don't replace them with any new loans and, uh, and get the government out of the student loan business altogether so we can see market forces take hold and lower the cost of tuition for students going forward so they're not getting uh, quite as tens and tens and tens of thousands into debt because the schools will start adjusting their prices to match the outcomes uh, of their degrees. Yeah, I think you split, you explain a little bit of my next question, but I'll still ask it just in case you have anything to add to it. So uh, one of your platform issues is ending stu the student debt crisis to assist in individual financial and retirement security. Uh, can you explain a little bit of this in depth? Um, you know, how do you, did you already share a little bit of how you were planning to end the student debt crisis? 
Mm-hmm. Um, how will we assist to uh, support the financial retirement security for uh, Americans? So I think that involves ending the student, uh, the social security system as we currently know it. Like uh, now, I don't mean take away social security for people who are currently living on it. My parents live on a fixed income, and that is uh, involves social security. And I don't think if you took that away tomorrow that every millennial, trust me, if you ask the average millennial, can you take care of your aging parents right now? They're going to say, hey, I haven't even been able to afford a mortgage yet uh, for myself, uh, much less take care of my parents and their mortgage, right? Uh, and, and so uh, I think if you're you're wanting to take that away immediately, that's not going to sell with the American public. But what we need to do is provide younger workers like myself, people who are 40 or under, uh, a means to actually save for retirement. Because uh, if we keep paying into the social security system, that, that we're not going to have benefits. Like, let's be realistic. And so we can either continue the status quo where I'm continuing to have money taken from my check and that I don't have benefits when I retire, or we can give younger workers the ability to take that money out, no longer have to contribute into the social security trust. The employee contribution would no longer uh, be being taken out. Let's return that back to us so we can put it into an IRA or a mutual fund or other retirement account that allows us to grow uh, our nest egg over time. Yes, this is absolutely what younger workers need, and we can do so without hanging uh, our, our, you know, our parents or our grandparents out to dry. Uh, and we can do this, and it's a responsible way to finish the system once and for all. This is not a, this is not like changing the retirement age to elongate the social security solvency. No, this is a means to off ramp every worker off of this program and over time, so that it's done once and for all, and we can return back to having a free market of retirement security because uh, social security is not working. It's a glorified Ponzi scheme. It always has been. Uh, and we need to be honest with ourselves about that, us younger workers, and particularly you Gen Zers, you're never getting social security. I am going to tell you right now. Uh, so we need to start having a plan that uh, gives us our tax money back so we can invest that back in elsewhere uh, for our own retirement security and uh, be doing that through mutual funds, IRAs, and other uh, uh, other mechanisms that can provide ourselves really, really good uh, retirement security. Absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. I I work uh, for local government myself, and it's hard to maintain. I, As you mentioned, I, I'm paying a mortgage, and sometimes I see myself like in the in-between. Like, do I pay this bill now, or do I late on this bill? Because the damn tax system, um, and every day goes higher and higher. That's um that's the IRS for for everybody. So talking about criminals like the IRS, let's go into criminal justice reform. So tw- um you know in 2020 we saw a rising of police brutality at least in the internet. Uh, we know that police brutality has been happening since forever, but in the internet, um with the wonders of the internet, we were able to see more of that, and we were able to hold some people accountable, and some you know we were not able to, um as we still see them out in the streets and patrolling. So you have shared in some of your speeches that you were arrested for just for fighting for justice reform. So first, um, you know, welcome to the team. I've been arrested twice uh, for fighting for um, civil rights and justice reform myself. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's, I don't know if it feels good or not. To me, it was um, two long weeks of my life. <laughs> um, but do you think we can achieve a justice system where there's no discrimination, um, no racism, no, you know, the police is not overpowered? And the citizens have more power, you know, but to an extent where the police understands what their job is, that is not to go around and harass, attack, or just kill anybody because they feel like their badge gives them that power. And so, you know, uh, yeah, so I do want to say first, uh, I'm not a member of the team. I've not been arrested protesting for justice. I've been tear gassed a few times. I've been corralled. Uh, I've, I've been in kind of dicey situations uh, protesting for uh, justice reform. 
not yet been arrested and you know oh, okay fingers, so fingers I, crossed right uh but you know knock on wood but uh i will say you know i appreciate you taking a stand and sometimes people do get arrested fighting for these things and uh as john lewis who was my congressman for a long time here in atlanta i don't agree with everything he said ever politically but he he certainly talked about getting into that good necessary trouble uh and i do think sometimes it does involve people taking a stand and sometimes that involves getting arrested uh, and, you know, just because you've been arrested doesn't make you a bad person, certainly. And sometimes it makes you a very good person uh, when you're fighting against the machine. Uh, but what do we do about justice reform and police brutality? As you said, uh, we, we see much more accountability when we see this on camera, right? Like I remember during the George Floyd protests, uh, we saw a video where police in Atlanta broke someone's window, dragged a woman and uh, a man and her, and her partner out of the car, tased them and then arrested them. Uh, and they were then fired. Uh, but it was only because they were caught on camera doing it. It was only because there was a local news camera there. Uh, and so this is why I do support uh, citizen initiatives and in localities all over the country to pass body cam mandates that all police should be carrying body cams when they're on duty. And those body cams should be made available to the public upon the date of arrest. So if you're arrested, you should get the body cam of your arrest that same day. It should be delivered to you and to your attorney. Uh, because they should be able to see if your arrest was invalid, if you weren't read your rights, if you were in, uh, improperly arrested, uh, if your civil rights have been violated. And as we've seen from some body cams, uh, some cops like to plant drugs on people. Uh, and when they think their body cams are off and it turned out, oh, their body cam was on and we saw you planting the crack cocaine in their car. That has happened in the past. And so I believe in holding law enforcement accountable through transparency. Uh you know, and, and this is why I support things like body cam mandates. I support ending qualified immunity so that pay people can get their day in court and civil court uh, when they feel they have been done wrong. That doesn't just get thrown out by a judge from this make believe mandate of qualified immunity. Uh, and then lastly, I do support the idea that all police should have to carry liability insurance because when they are done wrong. Right. You know, uh, most cities, their largest percentage of the tax base goes towards the police already, like uh, uh, in Wichita, Kansas, which just elected a libertarian mayor who for some reason wants to hire more police, uh, well, police are already 42% of the Wichita budget, for instance. And so if they're done wrong by police, their uh, their lawsuit money shouldn't be coming out of those other services uh, that, that are already being funded locally. It should come out of an insurance policy. By the way, liability insurance is a free market mechanism to keep bad cops off the streets because if you do bad things and you have a payout, well, you're uninsurable, buddy. You can't be a cop anymore. And that means you just need to find another industry to work in. And so that's a free market mechanism to get bad cops off the streets. But to answer your question, can we can we get rid of all discrimination in our justice system? Uh, sadly, no, because it will be done by human beings. As long as human beings are involved, there will be, unfortunately, the ability for human beings to have biases. Uh, but we do need to crack down on that as much as possible. That involves honesty, transparency, and for the citizens to be able to have a voice against their police. Uh, absolutely. And then one thing we can also do to fix this is ending the overcriminality that exists in our justice system. The fact that we have a war on drugs, the fact that we have a war on immigrants, the fact that we have this overcriminalized penal system uh, that, of course, is lobbied by the private prison industry. They want to get more people in those prison beds. Uh, but we have an overcriminalized society. And so when we remove the crimes that are victimless, where people, when there's no force, fraud, coercion, theft, or violence involved, well, when we remove that, we remove the ability for police to be cracking down on so much of our populations to begin with. And increasingly, it's being shown that the war on drugs is a huge, huge uh, part of the systemic racism of our justice system from its very founding. If you talk to the people in the Nixon administration who started the war on drugs to begin with, it was to arrest the blacks and the hippies that they didn't like. Uh, and so from its very foundation, it has been a tool of oppression, it has been a tool that has been used to crack down 
on populations they deem uh, that they might not like. And it has become a huge part of the systemic racist justice system that exists that we need to fight against. I absolutely agree with that. Um, that was, again, like great explanation uh, and great, great go through with that. So then let me ask you, you know, I myself, um, and I'm pretty sure every libertarian, or at least I can speak for the ones that I know are believers that if the government can have it, so can we, um, you know, uh, in 2021, though, I had a friend who was arrested during in the middle of a protest for open carrying um, because police um, who were, by the way, in riot gear, you know, had like the bigger guns than him. Um, he thinks that then he looked too threatening. So pretty much uh, because he looked threatening, they arrested him. Um, as a libertarian, I believe in the right, you know, to everybody to open carry um, and conceal carry. It's everybody's right to have a gun. Um, so let me ask you, do you feel that if um, police can carry their weapon at any time, do you think uh, citizens should be able to carry it freely? And this means, you know, freely open carry. If they don't have a license, they should be allowed. If they have a license, they should also be allowed. Yeah, we call that constitutional carry here in Georgia, and we do have that. And I actually love the fact that I have I live in a constitutional carry state. So I absolutely support the right of people to be able to carry or conceal or open carry however they like um, with minimal restriction, right? Like, I don't believe there should be really any restriction. Uh, the only reason I would need to get a concealed carry license in Georgia is if I'm going to travel to another state that requires it and needs that rep uh, reciprocity. But, uh, you know, I think every state should be constitutional carry where you don't need a license to conceal carry. Uh, and I think it's ridiculous that a person in riot gear would determine that someone else is threatening looking. In fact, the whole reason why riot gear is designed the way it is, is to threaten and intimidate a population. And so it seems funny to me that they think that's illegal for a private citizen to do, but it's perfectly acceptable for the public police uh, to be uh, to be scary and intimidating. And so that just is a, a funny irony to me uh, personally. But yeah, I think you should be able to open carry if you want to. I believe that that's a check against tyranny. And I uh, absolutely support the right of gun owners. You know, I said during my debate with Senator Warnock that, you know, I'm a member of the Pink Pistols because I believe that armed gays are harder to bash. They're harder to oppress. And that goes for everybody. And so I absolutely support the right of self-defense. I support the right to own a gun. And I support minimal restrictions on that as much as possible because uh, right now we are over-regulated in, uh, in the way we have. And, and frankly, that comes from Democrats and Republicans. The last Republican president that we had in office passed bump stock bans, wanted to pass red flag laws. Uh, the governor of Tennessee, who's a Republican, wants to pass red flag laws. And so uh, this is not a Democrat-only issue. This is an issue that libertarians are basically standing alone for the rights of gun owners all over the country, of which we are the most heavily armed country in the world. We're the most gun-accepting country in the world. And it's time that firearm owners really understand that the Republican Party is not there for you. The Libertarian Party is there for you. Uh, and that's something that I'm going to be running on, certainly, as a candidate for president, to really contrast myself with the soft on gun support that you see in the, Demo uh, the Republicans. And then, obviously, the uh, anti-gun uh, messaging that you see from the Democrats. And as somebody who's LGBTQ, I want to say that I'm happy that I can able to protect myself and my community with a gun, particularly as you see this rise uh, in kind of hatred towards the LGBTQ community. I'm glad that I can protect myself and I encourage others to do the exact same. Uh, protect yourself, protect your family, protect your community. And that goes for each and every person, regardless of who you are. And so the government should take their hands off because it's not where they belong. And we have a Second Amendment that says shall not be infringed. And that's pretty plain English. And I think uh, you shouldn't have to have a public, even a public school education can tell you uh, that shall not be infringed uh, is pretty plain spoken. 
Yeah, I um regularly when people ask me why are you a libertarian, I always have the um the quote that I one day made as a joke and I kept that it is that I would like my gay friends to be able to protect protect their wheat plants and their untaxed gold with guns. And that's pretty much every freedom that exists. And since then I just that's my like quote all the time. Why are you a libertarian? Simple words. There you go. <laughs> so I think that's the best way to explain it for me. So but let me uh moving on, let's go to um, you also have as part as your platform to end the death penalty, which I have seen um, and read through it. But I wanted to ask on in depth. So, what are what's your view views on that, and what are the solutions do you find to you know, it like horrible things like the electric chair or lethal injection that has been used in America for forever ago? Mm-hmm. What are just like your feelings and solutions for it? Well, you know, uh, let's root this back to the principles of liberty, right? Uh, the principle of liberty is that the government can put you to death. They can do whatever they want with your body. You know, if you're if you're granting them the ability to just end your life, then they can control your life. And so as a principle of liberty, we should be opposing state and san- uh, state-sanctioned death penalty because the state shouldn't have the right to do that. Uh, but then it goes more into the details of the fact that there's no infallibility of the death penalty. Uh, just because you're convicted and put to death certainly doesn't mean you're guilty. And in fact, we see more and more people uh, post their death, post the government putting them to death, being exonerated through DNA evidence and other means. Uh, and so that tells me if it happens one time, that's one time uh, too many. And in fact, I'll be traveling to West Memphis, Arkansas uh, coming up to uh, kind of shoot a little bit of video to discuss the fact that there was the West Memphis Three, these three young men who were accused of murdering uh, young boys, one of whom was put uh, on death row, and it was later revealed that they had not committed the crime. They were exonerated. Thank goodness it happened before the state of Arkansas put this young man to death. Uh, But it did rob years of their life, but at least you can get your life back, right? Like if you put someone to death, there's no turning back on that. And so I think we should join most of the rest of the world that has outlawed capital punishment. Uh, all of our allies in Europe, most of the countries all over the world, uh, except for maybe like, what is it? Saudi Arabia, China, Iran, North Korea. Uh, are these the nations that we want to be standing up for in their justice system? No, absolutely not. We should be able to say that we can end capital punishment and still be able to put murderers away, put rapists away, put those who have committed heinous crimes away uh, and separate them from society. In fact, that's one of the uh, that is one of the responsibilities of a minarchist state is to do that, to adjudicate justice. Uh, but it doesn't mean we have to put them to death and certainly not with inhumane means like lethal injection, where we've seen people who are suffering from lethal injection. They don't die. They just go through horrible misery or they go through it for hours and hours and hours before they finally succumb to death. Uh, that's cruel. That's unusual. And that's horrible. And it's not something that I feel comfortable with being done in my name. And when something is done through the state, it's being done with the uh, acceptance of our representatives who represent each and every one of us. And so we need to be asking that our representatives in Congress and our president, whomever they may be, and I hope it's me in 2024, can outlaw the death penalty federally and join the rest of the nations around the world who have deemed this unacceptable and, and seen the fallacy of putting people to death and giving the state the ability to control each and every aspect of your life. Which again, if they can put you to death, that means they can control each and every aspect of your life, including ending it. And we should never, ever give the state that ability and fight back against it 100%. And if I'm a candidate on a debate stage, I'm happy to make that contrast with the Donald Trumps of the world, or even the Joe Bidens of the world who wanted to pass stiffer penalties with the 94 crime bill. It's time we really rethink justice in a way that is reparative, restorative, and that can also keep those who are the worst away from our society for good. Absolutely. So, you know, as I, as we were talking about the um, electric chair. We know many innocent lives have been taken away by it. Uh, and 
regularly when I hear the electric chair, a lot of goes back to the 1944 case of uh, the 14-year-old George Sweeney. Um, I've mentioned this to a lot of friends, regularly goes back to that and how he was uh, wrongfully executed by the state. So you mentioned that you like, you know, you want to abolish that penalty in the country. So what do you, what solutions do you like think we can offer better um, that are like less inhumane, that are more, more humane to people, you know, still, even if they're a criminal to treat them like the human beings than they are. Yeah, I think uh, that's something that we need to talk about. When I talk about justice reform, I don't just mean when your interaction with the police. I also mean uh, your interaction with the courts. And of course, if you're convicted, the way our prisons treat people. Uh, in fact, it's a trauma factory is what many of our prisons are. People go in having committed a crime and they are constantly traumatized while they are in prison. And of course, especially if you're, say, a drug user, you have to go through the withdrawals of that. And if you're not able to get drugs in prison, which... That just goes to show you how stupid the war on drugs is. We can't even keep drugs out of prisons. Uh, but you know, if you're not using in prison, you're you're going through withdrawals. You're having to go, uh, go through the trauma of being in prison, uh, oftentimes without any kind of addiction therapy programs, any kind of programs that really uh, effectively help people uh, get themselves back to where when they get out of prison, they are coming back in with a, uh, the ability to reenter society with some sort of success rate. And what we have is we have this recidivism rate that's horrible in our country. And it's a, and it's a crisis. And it's something that we really need to look at is to why do so many people who, who offend go back to reoffend again? And how can we fix this in our prisons? And it is something that I do believe, again, as a minarchist state, I do believe that the justice system is one of the few things a state should reasonably be taking care of and handling. And we need to be demanding better from our prisons and better from those programs so that people, when they get out, they're not just been traumatized for a couple of years. And of course, the first thing they do when they get out is go right back to those behaviors that created the trauma to begin with, particularly with our uh, with drug use and addiction. This is why I believe we should end the war on drugs. Uh, and, and so uh, I think there's definitely better ways to be able to treat our prisoners and to make sure that when they are ending their uh, sentence, they're re-entering society more whole and, and, and in a better position to be able to re-enter society with success as opposed to just waiting for the revolving door for them to go right back into prison. Uh, and, and this will help particularly those who are the lowest in rungs of the economic ladder because those are the people who are most affected by our justice system to begin with. And so I think it's something that uh, as a candidate for president and just as an activist in general, I, I advocate for these kinds of changes because I see, uh, I see the real you know, I have I have friends and I have family members who have been in prison and I see the real trauma that that creates. And, and I would like to reduce that and to create a more restorative justice system. And also, by the way, that creates better outcomes for you and me and every other law abiding citizen, because it creates a more safe and stable society for us and our, for our children to grow up in. And so if we really want to address crime, we need to change the way we're addressing it, because uh, what we've been doing with this uh, zero tolerance crackdown police state for the last uh, since Ronald Reagan, really, and even going back to further into the Nixon years, uh, what we've been doing for the last 50 years isn't working. And it's time for us to have a change. And this is why we need new generational leadership, because Joe Biden is of the generation that signed the 94 crime bill. He championed it. Uh, Donald Trump is of the generation that uh, believes in cracking down on people. He's the one who said, give the death penalty to Central Park Five, right? And so it's time that we have a new generation of leadership who's going to think about justice in a way that's forward looking in a way that's going to really create safer communities for us, for our kids and for future generations. Absolutely. Um, thank you for that. That um, that brings a lot to the picture. Um, understanding to a lot of the death penalty solutions. There are solutions. There's just the government. The current government doesn't want to bring those solutions to uh, you know because somehow it makes them happy. I guess whatever's happening. And this brings me to the next question, uh, which pretty much 
you know, is also uh, with criminal justice. Uh, many states we have seen in the past year, abortion um, abortion has become illegal slowly in a lot of states or rapidly, pretty much. Um, and now women that have an abortion, no matter if they're like doing it through a doctor or even themselves, can be treated as a felon. And some of them can even end in jail for over 10 years. Um, you know, if elected president, what would you do to keep abortion like legal at federal level and help at least help the states to pass abortion rights where women are free to do to have a choice in their body yeah so i want to say you're in ohio i was a supporter of issue one in ohio i'm glad it passed um but i am a pro-choice candidate uh, i am somebody and, and i want to and i want to preface this by saying it doesn't mean i'm a pro-abortion candidate i'm a pro the right to receive an abortion if you need to but I also think there's many things we can do that can lower the instances of abortion across the country, like making uh, birth control over the counter, uh, increasing NGO and nonprofits uh, ability to access uh, support services and streamline adoption so that it's less expensive for new parents that want to get involved and support avenues like adoption. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but I do believe that as a right of medical you know, bodily autonomy, uh, we should maintain the standard that Roe and Casey had put forward of uh, you know, being pro uh, ability to access abortion rate, uh, uh, access to abortion up until the point of viability, and then past that, the only exception would be for the life of the mother. I do believe that that's something that uh, should be nationwide uh, because I think it's a national standard. I mean, you know, if you believe abortion is murder, you should also believe that abortion should be illegal nationwide. Uh, this is, should really not be a state's rights issue, in my opinion. Uh, I think this is a federal issue. Uh, because if you believe abortion is murder, well, then you would want murder illegal in all 50 states. You wouldn't say, well, some states can have murder being legal and some states can't. Uh, and, but if you do believe that abortion is a choice and is something that uh, involves medical autonomy, uh, you would want to see it legal in all 50 states as well. Uh, again, this doesn't mean that I want to increase the rates of abortion. I actually want to see a decrease in rates of abortion. Uh, but you don't do that with a blanket outlaw, just like you don't uh, see a decrease in the rate of immigration just because you make it illegal. You don't see a decrease uh, in the use of drugs because it was made illegal. Uh, it just moves it to a black market, which is rife for exploitation, for violence, and for uh, and for people to die, frankly, uh, if you move the abortion out of the medical exam room and into the back alley. And so... I'm something who's to defend a woman's right to choose, uh, and I and I believe that's where most of America is. I believe, honestly, it's where most libertarians are. And while I respect those who are uh, who choose not to receive an abortion or who would be pro-life uh, in their words, well, I support their right to live as they see fit too. Uh, I'm not going to force their choices upon them, even to the point of their death. There are people who will refuse to get an abortion, even if it means the death of the mother. And if that's the case, they can choose that for themselves. I'm not going to force one thing or another upon them. Uh, but I do believe we need to live in a country where choice is respected and where we do respect that point of viability uh, and then create that exception for life of the mother. And that's where I, I think I stand. And again, I think that's where the most American voters and certainly Generation Z stands. And I think if we, uh, if we libertarians take a strictly pro-life platform stance, uh, we, run to, we risk to lose the Gen Z vote. And we risk to lose a lot of voters. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I myself was a very uh, strong supporter of issue uh, issue one and issue two here in Ohio, which was our past election, which mm -hmm. uh, brings me to the next one. As I mentioned, issue two here, um, actually, I have some friends who were uh, today at the state house because they're trying to change, again, cannabis laws in Ohio. So, yeah, uh, this question, uh, you know, a study by ACLU uh, says that marijuana arrests account for over half of all drug arrests in the United States. Um, and 
the years from 2001 to 2010, 8.2 million marijuana arrests were done, and 88% were simply for having, you know, for just possessing and having it on your possession. Um, I myself, you know, as, as I mentioned already, I'm an activist for uh, cannabis. Um, even it's funny, I have never partaken, but I, I am for all your freedoms all of the time. So you have mentioned how, you know, the war on drugs is a failed thing. So let me ask you, what is your stance on the topic uh, of legalization? And should it be like legalization of cannabis? And let's just say like actually all drugs pretty much. And do you think the justice system approach to cannabis is rather harsh than like any other thing as of right now? Yes. So to, to, to answer it in a simple question, uh, yes, but uh, let's go a little more in depth into that and look why we need to change our model of fighting uh, addiction, which is really what the crisis is, is the crisis of addiction. Uh, I don't believe in punishing peaceful behavior of people. Uh, and, and that is what, you know, cannabis or any other drug use is. I think we should uh, decriminalize uh, uh, drug use for each and every individual. And I think, you know, as far as legalization, uh, we don't need to be doing what the Ohio Republicans are trying to do, which is change the regulatory statutes that issue uh, to pass by trying to make it like up the tax rate and change the things like that. No, you need to have minimal, minimal regulatory function for the cannabis industry, uh, just like any other industry. Uh, and, and I would fight to simplify and streamline those those regulatory hurdles. But in terms of simple possession, we need to be doing what Portugal did uh, 20 years ago or over 20 years ago now. You know, they were faced with the worst HIV rates and the worst hepatitis rates in the continent of Europe because they had a huge IV drug use problem. A lot of people were using heroin there. And they could have done what the United States did and fought a war on drugs and tried to crack down. But I'm glad they did something radically different. They decided to decriminalize all drugs and create avenues for people who are addicts to get addiction therapy. Now, some of their stuff is state-sponsored addiction therapy, and I think you can actually do that through the NGO and private marketplace a lot better. But neither here nor there, you're not throwing people in jail. Uh, for simple possession and simple use. You're allowing people to access things like clean needles, so that way they're not sharing hepatitis or HIV with other users. Uh, you're allowing for things like possession of Narcan or fentanyl testing. Or if you have drugs in Portugal, you can take your heroin to a pharmacist, pay a small fee, and determine if there's anything in that other than heroin. So you know if there's fentanyl, for instance, in your drugs. This has curbed uh, the, the OD rate to where it's lower in Portugal than it is in the rest of Western Europe. And so these are real steps that we can take and we can look at a real world example that's seen it successful and apply that to our communities here in the country where we're suffering. We are suffering from addiction all over the country and particularly opioids. And this is what has caused the opioid market to be flooded with the fentanyl and fake opioids. And this is what's causing people to die all over the country. And so we need to really change this to help our communities, to help our to help our sons and daughters and brothers and sisters who are suffering from addiction. Uh, and the only way we're going to address that crisis is by seeing it as a medical crisis and not a law enforcement issue. And so I think it's time that we radically, radically change the way we look at drugs and really decriminalize all these things. And by the way, we need to be doing this also for people who need the medical assistance that some of these drugs can provide. You know, uh, psilocybin is legal in the state of Oregon for people to access. Uh, and particularly, it's great for those who are suffering from PTSD to access that medication with a therapist to help them have real breakthroughs and understanding what their trauma, the central core of what their trauma is coming from so they can move beyond those things. Uh, I wish people in Oregon who were veterans who are suffering from PTSD could access that medicine. But because psilocybin is federally illegal, they're not able to access that medical help that they could really desperately need. And I think veterans all over the country who are suffering from PTSD 
should be able to access that uh, that medication too, if it's going to help them overcome their traumas. Uh, but what we're doing right now with the war on drugs is we're not allowing for the exploration of how those uh, drugs can be applied in a medical setting. And we're letting big pharma basically sell us a bunch of antidepressants and other things because, of course, they bought and paid for our Congress. And so, yeah, we need to end the war on drugs. Yes, we need to open up medical avenues for medical cannabis and medical psilocybin, MDMA and other things. And we need to really, really change the way we think about drugs and addiction in this country to help those who need it. And again, you're not going to hear that from Donald Trump or Joe Biden. You are going to hear that from a libertarian. So this is why we need to have more voices in the discourse. This is why we need to have support. And this is why I'm encouraging you. If you're listening to this podcast at this point right now and you're liking what you're hearing, join your state party. Get involved and help Chase Oliver become the libertarian nominee for president so we can see these ideas put on a national stage and let voters feel good about voting for something. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to share. I, I live in Cleveland and I live between two two wards. So I live in the border of Ward 11 and Ward 16. If you move to Ward 16, Ward 16 in 2022 was um, counted as in the entire state of Ohio, the most um, overdose like area in the state of Ohio. Um, and, you know, there was a study that Cleveland.com did and we were checking and you know, we we are given a lot of Narcan on a daily basis. So this comes for me to ask, how do you feel about putting, uh, you know, funding, somehow funding uh, safe injection centers for people that are, you know, in, in drug addiction to be able to do it? And as you mentioned, you know, not having to share a needle, have someone in there. Then if something happens to them, they're immediately able to take care of and they're taken care of immediately. And this primarily for addicts and people who they're not just addicts, but they do like, you know, if they get to do it and they or they want to do it, they can go there. They can also get like a therapy before doing it or something in case and they want to also prevent themselves from doing it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't think the federal I don't think the government needs to fund those rooms. But what they do need to do is get out of the way of other people wanting to fund those rooms. Uh, they should absolutely allow for those to exist in the NGO nonprofit space. And I think that's the best way to actually apply those and get those things set up to help people uh, is not using centrally planned government because it's ineffective. It takes forever. There's a whole bureaucratic state involved. But we should remove the bureaucratic state from trying to prevent those things from happening uh, because it will save lives. It has shown to save lives and it has shown to have better public health outcomes. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I personally know somebody who runs an out, uh, a group out of Oklahoma that because in a year of distributing Narcan and fentanyl testing, they've saved over 600 people from overdosing in one single year. That's 600 people who would who'd possibly be dead otherwise without their help. And we could allow for more organizations to enter our cities like Cleveland or Atlanta or anywhere else to provide those services to people who need it and to create a safe, trusted space for people to be able to use if they need to or access Narcan, clean needles, fentanyl testing, these other things. But what we really need to do is get the state out of uh, stopping people from doing this. Uh, we need to allow people to get out in those places and help those who are in need and not being a barrier. And uh, particularly local governments, this is uh, uh, this is where local tyranny rears its ugly head the most is when people in their neighborhoods try to help other people in their neighborhoods. And the government says, oh, you need a permit for that or there's an ordinance for that or this should be done through the state or through the city. No, we should allow neighbors to be able to help neighbors. We should allow people to provide direct and mutual aid uh, to our fellow community members. And I think when the state gets in the way, it's a crime. It allows people to die. The state is allowing people to die when they get in the way of this. And so we need to be demanding better from our local governments and from our elected officials than this BS because it's putting people's lives on the line and it's costing people their lives. And it's high time that we stop it and we re-examine what we're doing and we change the path. And again, 
we need a new generation of leadership that's going to be fighting for this because the old ways of doing things are not working in the 21st century. It's time we have a 21st century president. And I want to be that for the Libertarian Party. And again, I'm half the age of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I'm ready to fight for the next quarter century, for the next generation of this country, and not just for getting elected every two years or every four years, because that's where our politics are in Washington, D.C. We have a bunch of old fogies who are in power whose only concern is continuing to hold on to power instead of allowing new ideas, fresh new leadership to get involved. And so it's time we challenge them at the ballot. And it's time we challenge them in the realm uh, of political activism and political discourse. And I'm ready to do it. Let me ask you, um, I know I didn't send this question, but let me ask you um, this question. Do you, how do you feel about term limits for the United States Congress? Um, and with term limits, I also, this also for the president's age limits. Um, I, I have this whole thing i some people call me some people say that i'm that's discriminatory but i also feel that you should not have a person who's 70 years old in the white house managing a country and you know as you have mentioned before a 20th century politician making decisions for 21st century issues so how do you feel about term limits and age limits specific impositions so age limits uh funny fact you know in canada their senate and their uh supreme court is limited to 75 years or younger you can't be you know you get you age out of their supreme court or their senate right um but i don't necessarily think that we have to provide age limits if we provide real term limits uh, and this includes on the supreme court too i think the court should have a term of 12 years uh, i think you should serve in the court for 12 years and you would see a and if we do that, you would see basically every two years a president being able to choose a new justice. Uh, and so we already know going in, like, unless there's an unexpected death, like how many Supreme Court justices you're likely to appoint to a term. Uh, and I think that's a far that's a great way to depoliticize the Supreme Court. But I also think it's a way to keep fresh new ideas coming in. And sometimes people who are older have great ideas, right? Sometimes they do. We shouldn't be discriminating against just because they're older. But we should be able to say you shouldn't be in power for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That's ridiculous. And so uh, I would love to support maybe a constitutional amendment that sets term limits for uh, four terms in the House, two terms in the Senate, and one 12-year term uh, to the Supreme Court. I think that's the, or is it 18 years? I'm trying to think of whatever it would be to create two-year terms. I think it's 18 years that would create a two-year term every time you go around. Uh, but either way, I would like to see fresh uh, new people coming in as opposed to these power structures remaining in for, for 50 years. And I don't think you need age limits necessarily to do that, but you will see younger people as a result uh, just coming in because you're not staying in for as long. Yeah, absolutely. And um, let me lastly ask you, I am, and this is the first time I say this publicly, so I, in 2025, I am running for Cleveland City Council. Um, nice. This is something I've been trying to do since forever, but um, this year I told myself I'm doing it. So what advice would you give 23-year-old me as a libertarian running for uh, Cleveland City Council. Okay, so uh, here's the thing that I'll give advice to any candidate for office. Be prepared to uh, pound the pavement and knock on doors and do not be afraid to talk to people. Don't be afraid to walk into rooms that are not full of people who are in your political party. You have to be willing to go into those people and convert new people. Um, but what I'm going to tell you as a local candidate is you need to get ready to knock on doors and meet every single one of your neighbors. Have a good piece of literature that you can hang on a door when someone's not there and make sure that when you hang that, you also put a post-it note on there with your handwriting saying, I'm a candidate for city council, I'd like to talk to you and leave your phone number because that's the way you're gonna win. You're gonna win by knowing your community and understanding their concerns and speaking to their concerns uh, and being honest, ethical, and transparent because that's what's missing so much from the local government and in, in, in our communities. And so uh, be friendly, be personable, 
uh, be willing to take criticism to your face, uh, but most importantly, being willing to get out and knock on doors because, you know, they say, what is it? One in every eight doors you knock on becomes a supporter. So it's a numbers game. Uh, so that's what I would advise you to do is get a comfortable pair of shoes and, and be ready to get out and walk in your neighborhood because that's what's going to take it for you to win Cleveland City Council or any city council anywhere in the country. Uh, and I want to say this. If I am the candidate for president in 2024, if you're a city council candidate who's a libertarian in 2024, I want to get out there and knock on those doors with you. I want to get out there and support you, too, because one of the real wins we can have for a libertarian running for president, you know, the, the, the challenge of us getting elected to the White House is a very, very high hill to climb. But there's a lot of victories we can have on the way up that hill. We can have local ballot access wins so state parties can make it easier for folks like yourself to run as libertarians. We can win major party status so that way we get uh, increased media attention and other advantages that the major parties currently have, just like in Iowa, where now the Libertarian Party will be participating in the Iowa caucuses this January. I'm going to be there uh, out there encouraging caucus supporters to pick me in the caucuses. But we get to do that because we won major party status. And most importantly, with a great candidate for president, we can get out and support local candidates just like yourself in 2025, but those who are running in 2024, we can get out right here, right now, knock on those doors for doors for them and help local candidates win all over the country. So we can build up our bench for liberty. We can grow the Libertarian Party. We can grow our presence and we can help break down the walls of duopoly, which is the most important thing we can do in 2024. And I'm very energized to get it started. And I'm excited that you're deciding to run in 2025. Uh, I also, Thank you. I will also say this, uh, be ready to be tired a lot because you're going to have long days. Uh, but this is what you signed up for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I've been campaign manager for about four candidates now. I've been doing politics, uh, working around with candidates since I was uh, 12 years old. So I, I know how all that part uh, works. and It's, it's amazing, uh, which is how I got so inspired. And this past um, year, seeing the Libertarian Party, Libertarian candidates have inspired me to also go for it myself. Yeah, you're well, you're then you're already well versed in the challenges. So I just wish you the best of luck and uh, and hope you do great, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, anything else you would like to add uh, for today? Um, anything you like to say? Anything you like to add? Yeah, well, I, I would reiterate that folks maybe who didn't hear a particular topic or something, uh, go to votechaseoliver.com. We have tons of information about the campaign, what we've been up to, what we support, uh, media camp, uh, you know, media grabs and all this stuff. Uh, and uh, I encourage you to sign up and join the campaign. Join as a volunteer. Join as a donor supporter. We need every single person's help to really spread the message of liberty across all 50 states. Again, that's at votechaseoliver.com. Or if you're on your phone listening to this right now, you can actually just pull out your phone, text the name Chase to 21,000, and that'll pull up a sign-up sheet right there for you. Or you can follow us on social media, at Chase for Liberty on X slash Twitter, uh, Chase Oliver Libertarian on Facebook, and uh, at Chase for Liberty on like TikTok, uh, YouTube, and really everywhere else. So uh, get a, uh, check it out, uh, join, subscribe, do all that good stuff. And uh, I will wish everybody who's listening to this the same thing that I wish to every single person when, uh, when I end a conversation, is that I hope each of you has a life full of peace, love, and liberty. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chase. I will also put all the um, social medias and stuff in the uh, notes for this podcast so everybody's able to also click on a link and just jump there. Thanks so, so much. So with, with that said, uh, remember in 2024, uh, your presidential candidate you should vote for is Chase Oliver for president. So let's do that. Let's get him elected. Thank you so much again, uh, Chase. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you are looking for the intro song of this episode and the outro song, it is the No Name Song by Mackenzie Levy, also known as the All Night in Cleveland. 
This episode and all episodes of Politico with Juan Cajal Diaz are Spotify original from Anchor.fm and Chuck Norris approved. Right, Chuck? Chuck Norris approved.